Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. Summit in Dubai, here in the United Arab Emirates. This is Democracy Now! The kids can't sleep, the kids can't eat, the kids can't even speak. Most of the time they're just mute, silent, uh, shaking out of fear, sometimes whimpering because of how close the, the bombs are wherever you are in uh, in Gaza. And again, the, 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 how the houses shake every time there is a bomb uh, around. And this is happening again all over Gaza Strip. Those were the words of the Palestinian poet and professor Rafat Alarir on Democracy Now! just two months ago. He was killed this week in an Israeli airstrike, along with his brother, sister, and four of his nieces. We'll speak to one of Rafat's close friends as the Palestinian death toll in Gaza tops 17,000. Then, in an exclusive interview, we speak with the indigenous climate activist Jacob Johns, shot two months ago in New Mexico by a gunman wearing a red MAGA hat. Jacob is here at the UN Climate Summit. I was shot in New Mexico while attending a prayer visual for a conquistador that was uh, trying to be put up for a statue. It was uh, like a homage to, to uh, colonization. Then. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is calling for phasing out fossil fuels, but has alarmed many climate activists as Brazil moves to join the oil producer alliance OPEC Plus as an observer state. Now is the time to face the debate about the slow-motion pace of the decarbonization of the planet and to work towards an economy that will be less reliant on fossil fuel. We'll speak to Amazon Watch about Lula's climate record. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Dubai. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees warns civil order is breaking down in the Gaza Strip as Israel continues its unrelenting assault. In one of the latest attacks, dozens of Palestinians were killed and injured. Israeli warplanes struck near the Alamal Hospital and the Palestinian Red Crescent headquarters in Khan Yunus. In Gaza City, Doctors Without Borders reports 115 Palestinians were brought to the Al-Aqsa Hospital Thursday, dead on arrival. The medical charity said in a statement, quote, the hospital is full, the morgue is full. We call on Israeli forces to stop the indiscriminate bombing of the Gaza Strip and protect civilians and civilian infrastructure. We need a ceasefire now, they said. 
Meanwhile, videos emerged showing Israeli soldiers in Bethlehia in northern Gaza detaining over 100 Palestinian men at gunpoint, forcing them to strip to their underwear while lined up kneeling on the pavement. Among those detained was Dia al-Haklut, a Palestinian journalist with the London-based pan-Arab newspaper Al-Arabi Al-Jadid. In a statement, the newspaper condemned the mistreatment of Al-Jadid and other civilians, saying Israeli forces, quote, deliberately subjected the Gazans to degrading treatment, forcing them to disrobe, conducting intrusive searches and subjecting them to humiliation upon arrest before forcibly transporting them to undisclosed locations, unquote. In the occupied West Bank, the Palestinian Health Ministry reports at least six Palestinians were killed and many others wounded in Israeli raids overnight. An Israeli airstrike in Gaza has killed the prominent Palestinian academic and activist Rafat Alarir, along with his brother, his sister, and four of her daughters. He authored dozens of stories and poems about life under Israeli occupation. Rafat Alarir spoke to Democracy Now! in October. Israeli strikes rattled his family's home in Gaza City. Speak about thousands, hundreds and thousands of Israeli bombs uh, and shells targeting all areas of the Gaza Strip. The kids can't sleep, the kids can't eat, the kids can't even speak. Most of the time they're just mute, silent, uh, shaking out of fear, sometimes whimpering because of how close the, the bombs are wherever you are in, uh, in Gaza. We'll hear more of our interview with Rafat Alarir after headlines and speak with Jihad Abbaslim, executive director of the Jerusalem Fund, former student of Rafat Alarir, whom Abbaslim described as a teacher, a mentor, and a friend. An anti-tank missile fired by Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon killed an Israeli civilian on Thursday. The cross-border attack prompted retaliatory fire from Israeli tanks and helicopter gunships. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu threatened to reduce Lebanon's capital, Beirut, to rubble if Hezbollah increases its attacks. If Hezbollah chooses to start an all-out war, then it will, by its own hands, turn Beirut and southern Lebanon, not far from here, into Gaza and Khan Yunus. In Tel Aviv, friends and family of Israelis held hostage by Hamas held a candle-lighting ceremony Thursday, marking the start of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. This is Daniel Lifshitz, whose 83-year-old grandfather, Oded, was kidnapped by Hamas and brought to the Gaza Strip October 7th. We light the candles for the return of the hostages, for the release of the hostages, to make a deal for the hostages, and uh, that's what we are here for. On Tuesday, released Israeli hostages joined the loved ones of Israelis still held captive in a meeting with Netanyahu and his war cabinet. Haaretz reports one woman whose release was negotiated during an exchange of captives assailed Israeli leaders for indiscriminate attacks that put hostages at risk. She said, quote, we slept in tunnels. We feared not Hamas, but Israel might kill us. And then it would have been said, Hamas killed you, unquote. 
another former hostage whose husband remains a captive, cited recent reports in the Wall Street Journal that Israel's drawn up plans to flood Gaza's network of underground tunnels with seawater, a move that could foul Gaza's supply of drinking water for decades. She said, quote, he was taken to the tunnels. And you talk about washing the tunnels with seawater. You prioritize politics over the hostages, she said. The United States military has launched joint flight drills with Guyana as the White House reaffirmed its unwavering support of Guyanese sovereignty amid mounting tensions with Venezuela over the disputed oil-rich Essequibo region. After holding a referendum on the issue last weekend, the Venezuelan government ordered its state-owned companies to start exploring oil and mineral reserves in Essequibo, which represents roughly two-thirds of Guyana's territory. Guyanese asked the International Court of Justice to reaffirm current borders. This is the Guyanese president, Irfan Ali. We will not allow our territory to be violated, nor the development of our country to be stymied by this desperate threat. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva said Thursday regional groups should help find a peaceful resolution, adding, quote, we do not need war in South America, Lula said. In Texas, a judge granted a temporary restraining order Thursday against the state's sweeping abortion ban to allow a 20-week pregnant woman with a non-viable fetus to get an abortion. 31-year-old Kate Cox filed the first-of-its-kind lawsuit last week. Travis County Judge Maya Guerra Campbell said it was, quote, unforgivable that she was forced to go to court, unquote, to seek emergency medical care. The idea that Ms. Cox wants desperately to be a parent and this law might actually cause her to lose that ability is uh, shocking and um, (laughs) would be a, a genuine miscarriage of justice. Following the judge's ruling, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton threatened to prosecute any providers involved in Kate Cox's abortion care. A Nevada grand jury has indicted six fake Trump electors who falsely claimed Trump won the 2020 vote in Nevada. They face felony charges with penalties that could see them sentenced to up to five years in prison. In Wisconsin, 10 pro-Trump Republicans involved in their state's fake elector scheme admitted Biden won Wisconsin in 2020 as part of a legal settlement. The agreement compels the 10 fake electors to cooperate with the Justice Department's investigations into Trump's election fraud and the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The Justice Department indicted Hunter Biden Thursday on nine counts of tax evasion. The indictment filed in California accuses President Biden's son of withholding at least $1.4 million in federal taxes owed from 2016 through 2019, including income from foreign businesses in Ukraine and China. This comes as Hunter Biden is already facing federal firearms charges in Delaware. And Benjamin Zephaniah. A British activist and poet whose works were inspired by his Jamaican and Barbadian roots has died at the age of 65. Zephaniah published his first collection of reggae-inspired dub poetry after he moved to London in 1979 
tackling topics like racism and poverty. He was also one of the first poets to address the climate crisis. In 2003, Benjamin Zephaniah refused the prestigious OBE Award, which stands for Order of the British Empire. In an op-ed, he wrote, quote, no way, Mr. Blair, no way, Mrs. Queen, I'm profoundly anti-empire, he said. In 2010, Zephaniah spoke to Democracy Now! just after he joined the British production of The People Speak, a people's history of Britain inspired by the work of the late historian Howard Zinn. I didn't know big words like democracy. I didn't know the difference between left or right or anything like that. I just knew I was suffering racism. I was suffering police brutality. Our schools are run down, our houses are run down, and I wanted to speak about it. Um, it was political, but I couldn't spell the word politics. I just wanted to talk about the conditions we lived in. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates at the UN Climate Summit. Israel's bombardment of Gaza has entered its third month. Health officials in Gaza say the Israeli assault has killed over 17,000 Palestinians. Earlier this week, an Israeli airstrike in Gaza City killed the acclaimed Palestinian academic and activist Rafat Alaria, along with his brother, his sister, and four of his nieces. For more than 16 years, Alarir worked as a professor of English literature at the Islamic University of Gaza, where he taught Shakespeare and other subjects. Rafat Alarir was a father of six and a mentor to many young Palestinian writers and journalists. He also co-founded the organization We Are Not Numbers. He authored dozens of stories and poems about life under Israeli occupation in Gaza. In a few minutes, we'll speak to one of his friends. But first, I want to return to Rifat Alarir in his own words. He's spoken to us several times. This is October 10th. As he spoke to Democracy Now!, Israeli strikes rattled his family's home in Gaza City. What is happening in Gaza is complete and utter extermination of the non-Jewish population in occupied uh, Palestine. As you mentioned, Israel ordered a medieval hermetic siege uh, from air and sea. Israel has also just bombed the only way out through Egypt, the Rafah, the Rafah crossing. The only way out is uh, for uh, what's happening, what we are uh, foreseeing is uh, slow starvation, slow genocide. Maybe Israel is going to push us all into the sea. And I think what is making it even more difficult than before is that the whole world, not even lip service, all uh, uh, American and European uh, countries and politicians are rushing to pledge allegiance to Israel and to Netanyahu. Israeli uh, American uh, politicians, uh, American uh, presidential hopefuls are literally calling for for uh, for genocide. American mainstream media is not pushing uh, back against Israeli officials calling for the collateral damage of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians uh, in Gaza. Uh, uh, why is this happening? Because 
we refuse to live under occupation. We refuse to live in, 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 in total submission. We want freedom. We want this occupation to end. This is, this is not a state of war, as uh, one of your guests just mentioned. This is a state of occupation that started over uh, seven, uh, 75 years that started with the, uh, uh, the, the British uh, Empire giving Palestine to the Zionist uh, movement in, in 1917. The only hope we have is in the growing popular support in, in America, in the movements, the, uh, of, of the, 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 the movements, the, the, the human rights and the rights movements in, in, in America and across Europe uh, to, to take to the streets, uh, to pressure their uh, politicians into uh, uh, putting an end uh, to this uh, uh, dark, dark uh, episode of not only uh, the history of the Middle East, but also the history of, of humanity. If people are asking how uh, was the Holocaust allowed and other genocides in Africa and across the world? Now you can see this live on TV, live on social media. Palestinians, whole blocks destroyed, hospitals, schools, uh, businesses. We, we are speaking about uh, uh, thousands and thousands of, of housing units uh, destroyed by, uh, by, by Israel. So my message to the free people of the world is, to move, to pressure, to mobilize, and to take to the streets. Rafat Aladir, you are the father of six. How old are your children? And can you describe uh, what it's like to live there right now? Like I said, this has been systematically happening for over seven, seven decades. It was uh, the noose around Gaza's uh, neck was tightened 15 years ago, and it's being tightened even further now. Uh, the, the, the situation is uh, unspeakable. Can, you can't describe what's happening in, in words. Uh, uh, we, we speak about thousands, hundreds and thousands of Israeli bombs uh, and shells targeting all areas of the Gaza Strip. The kids can't sleep. The kids can't eat. The kids can't even speak. Most of the time, they're just mute, silent. Uh, shaking out of fear, sometimes whimpering because of how close the, the bombs are wherever you are in uh, uh, in Gaza. And again, the, 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 how the houses shake every time there is a bomb uh, around. And this is happening again all over Gaza Strip. Israel is telling people, is pushing people forcibly to leave uh, out of their uh, uh, homes and uh, uh, and asking, urging them to go to certain places like the city center or the UN places, shelters, and then Israel bombs the roads leading to these areas and bombs uh, these crowded areas. Yesterday there was a massacre. Israel killed about 60 Palestinians in Jabalia refugee camp in a local market where there is a, a UN school, people, people taking shelter there. So whether it is my, my kids or any Palestinian kid, or any Palestinian, no one is safe, no place is safe. Israel is bombing everywhere. Those were the words of the acclaimed Palestinian academic and activist Rafat Aladir, speaking on Democracy Now! October 10th. Earlier this week, he was killed in an Israeli airstrike, along with his brother, his sister, and four of his nieces. Rafat last posted on social media Monday, writing on the platform X, quote, the Democratic Party and Biden are responsible for the Gaza genocide perpetrated by Israel. When Democracy Now! spoke to Rafat during the 2021 Israeli assault on Gaza, 
He also accused the Biden administration of enabling the massacre of Palestinians. I think it was uh, Biden that gave uh, Netanyahu the, the green light to start this when uh, uh, the, uh, they tweeted that America supports Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, uh, two days after the aggression started, I quickly said that this is going to be a long a war against civilians because Israel is killing us using American weapons, using American technology, using American uh, 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 planes. Uh, America has the American administration, all American administrations have blood, Palestinian blood on their hands. The massacre that is going on is on Biden. Again, the words of the late Palestinian academic and activist Rafat al speaking on Democracy Now! in 2021, months after he had written an op-ed for The New York Times headlined, My child asks, can Israel destroy our building if the power is out? We're joined right now by Jihad Absalim, scholar and policy analyst from Gaza, executive director of the Jerusalem Fund, he was a student and close friend of Rafat al-Adir. Um, Jihad, thank you so much for joining us. Our deepest condolences on the loss of your friend, who you've known for some 17, 18 years. Can you talk about how you learned of Rafat's death and tell us the story of his life? Thank you for having me. Uh, I was at work when my wife called me um, asking me if I heard something about Rifat and if the news about him were true I opened my my phone I looked at my social media apps and that was the moment I realized that he was gone Rifat Larair was a towering figure in Palestinian society, especially in Gaza. He transcended the role of a mere educator and a teacher. He was a mentor, a beacon of wisdom and guidance, a loving father and husband, and a compassionate son. Rifat's presence enriched the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of students. His influence extended far beyond the confines of the classroom. Rifat wasn't just a teacher. He was a friend, a confidant. He was someone who loved to support his students and who believed strongly in the potential of each student, offering them personal advice and guidance. Rifat will be missed. It is really hard to sum up Rifat's story in a few words. But one thing I can say, Amy, is that Rifat's life was not without its share of many, many challenges. Despite personal tragedies and the harsh realities of life in Gaza, Rifat remained unwavering using his pen and his voice to fight back and to write back. His resilience was an inspiration to us all, his students and friends and members of the cultural, intellectual and literary community in Gaza. 
in a place like Gaza where educational resources are scarce, uh, Rifat's mastery of the English language was more than a skill. It was a mission. He saw English as a, as a, as a key, a tool to liberation uh, and a means to defy the siege and intellectual and academic restrictions that Israel imposed on Gaza and other Palestinian communities. So for him, his teaching wasn't just about imparting knowledge or conducting exams. It was about empowerment, about using language as a weapon against oppression. Do you know, Jihad, how he was killed? From, from what we hear in the media and based on reports by his friends, neighbors, he was sheltering at a school and he received a phone call from the Israeli intelligence informing him that his location, that they located his place, that they identified his location. And whether this was a, a call from an official arm of the Israeli intelligence or a mere troll, we don't know, he decided that it, it's probably not safe for him to remain at the school where he was sheltering. So he went probably to see family, his sister, his brother. And at that moment, the place where he was, was bombed, which led to killing him, his sister, his brother, and his four nieces. Many of the details remain unknown given the fact that the part of Gaza where he was killed in Shija'iyya is cut off from the rest of the Gaza Strip. It is under heavy bombardment and it is the site of many atrocities that are still being committed by Israeli forces. So without having journalists and investigators and workers with international organizations access these areas, we can't really fully grasp all the details of Rafat's death and, of course, the tragedy, the tragedies that have befell many, many other Palestinians there. Jahad Abu Salim, uh He's taught at Islamic University, is that right? I, you know, before uh, the well-known human rights attorney, Raji Sarani, ultimately left Gaza, uh, we were interviewing him at his home in Gaza City. Um, and he, the house shook, and he's, we learned then that Islamic University had been hit. Now, in the last days, we've learned that the president of uh, Islamic University was killed with his family, Professor Sufyan Taya. Um, uh, that occurred um, uh, just recently. Um, he was a well-known mathematician and physicist. Uh, 
Did you know him? I did not know Professor Tyer, but as someone who went to both the Al-Azhar University in Gaza, which was destroyed, the Islamic University in Gaza, which was destroyed, I can tell you that the scale of loss, the tragedy that has befallen the academic, scholarly, and intellectual community in Gaza and in Palestine is unprecedented. Israel is destroying the foundations of society in the Gaza Strip. Israel is systematically destroying our educational system, our cultural institutions, and today we saw footage of the Grand Omari Mosque in Gaza, a structure that dates back to thousands of years, also in ruins. This is a genocidal war of erasure, of uprooting, and of mass destruction. We mourn our teachers, our educators, our doctors, our nurses, our friends, our neighbors, and we also are mourning the loss of a society as we knew it that no longer exists. And this is all happening while the world is watching, leaving Palestinians in Gaza endure one of the largest bombardment campaigns in the 21st century. How is this ac acceptable? How is this allowed to happen? Jihad Absalim, Rafat edited two volumes. Can you talk about those books? Uh, like Gaza writes back. He was a poet, a writer, an author, an activist. In Gaza writes back, Rafat says, and I quote, writing is a testimony, a memory that outlives any human experience and an obligation to communicate with ourselves and the world. We lived for a reason, to tell the tales of loss, of survival, and of hope." In quote. Rifat al-Ara'ir understood the power of English. He understood that in a place like Gaza, where educational resources are scarce, and where educational institutions are cut off from the rest of the world, he realized that his mastery of the English language was more than a skill. It was a mission. So he saw English as a, as a key to liberation, a means to defy the siege and the intellectual and academic blockade that Israel has imposed and continues to impose in Gaza. And as I said, Rifat's teaching wasn't just about imparting knowledge, it was about empowerment and about using language as a weapon against oppression. So when Rifat was teaching those hundreds and thousands of students, including myself, he, he said to us, 
that we are living in a world that is refusing to hear us, is refusing to listen to us, and is refusing to listen to our stories. And he warned, he warned that the world will continue to perceive Palestinians as numbers and to perceive their pain as abstract statistics mentioned in the reports of human rights organizations that come out every year and and then are rendered unimportant. So he told us that we have to write our stories. We have to talk about our stories and we have to make sure that our stories are communicated in every language and in every way possible. Jihad, I'm wondering if as we wrap up, um, you can read the poem that Rafat had pinned to his Twitter page, the top, If I Must Die. I will, and it's a great honor to do so. Rafat wrote, If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings, make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who lived in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself. Seize the kite, my kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there, bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope, let it be a tale. Jihad Abu Salim, I want to thank you for being with us again. Deepest condolences on the loss of your friend and mentor. Jihad is a scholar and policy analyst from Gaza, the executive director of the Jerusalem Fund, speaking to us from Virginia. Um, Rifat Alarir was the editor of two volumes, Gaza Unsilenced and Gaza Writes Back. We'll also link to his op-ed piece in the New York Times he wrote several years ago. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Meanwhile, here at COP28 in Dubai, protests in solidarity with Palestine have faced severe restrictions. Earlier today, Asad Rehman, the lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition, joined with other leaders of human rights groups in a media huddle to talk at an unofficial media briefing. There's a deep irony that we have the Secretary General invoking Article 99 of the UN Charter and we still, and in this a UN space uh, where you have countless UN institutions calling for a ceasefire, even uttering the word ceasefire has been something that we were blocked from saying and it has taken us 
a week of negotiating before we were allowed to say that sentence in there. But still today, uh, any visual depictions of that, including badges, etc., people have been told they are not allowed to wear that. Uh, people have been told they will be debadged if they don't take off those badges uh, or take off kafirs or take off these lanyards. I have to say, some both of us who have been involved in this UN space for many, many years, this is probably the most restrictive we've seen. Way more restrictive than Egypt last year. And, and deep irony there, where we were promised that our rights as civil society would be protected here. And everything we have tried to do has been within the UN rules. Everything. We are well versed in the UN rules about what is acceptable and not acceptable. But the rules are being changed on a day by day basis. They've been interpreted by somebody else to determine what is acceptable and not acceptable. We were told that was because by the COP presidency. We went and saw the COP presidency, and the COP presidency said both privately and then publicly. It is not the COP28 presidency which is pushing for these restrictions. Then the question is, who is pressuring the UN and the UN institution, a UN agency, that we are not allowed to raise? What is a question that is, of course, uppermost uh, on the, uh, in everybody's minds, both what's taking place in Gaza, the fact that international law and humanitarian law is, is, lies in shreds, and what that implies means for us as, an org as organizations deeply committed to both the multilateral space and also, of course, international law. Asad Reynan, the lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition, speaking earlier today here at COP28 in Dubai. Coming up, an exclusive interview. We speak to indigenous climate activist Jacob Johns. He was shot in the chest two months ago in New Mexico by a gunman wearing a red MAGA hat. We'll speak to the indigenous environmental activist. Stay with us. by Karim Bagili, featuring Latrio Gibran. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we broadcast from COP28 in Dubai. We look now at threats to land and environmental defenders on the front lines of the climate crisis. Global Witness documented that last year, a climate defender was killed every other day somewhere in the world. In a minute, we'll speak with Jacob Johns, a Hopi and Akmal Adam environmental defender with the U.S. Climate Action Network, 
who's leading the Indigenous Wisdom Keepers delegation here at COP28 after he survived being shot in the chest by a far-right agitator in September in Española, New Mexico. The 23-year-old shooter was a supporter of Donald Trump, was wearing a red MAGA hat when he attacked a protest against the reinstallation of a statue of the violent Spanish conquistador Juan de Oñate. Johns and other indigenous activists were protesting plans to reinstall the statue honoring the 16th century conquistador, who was also New Mexico's first colonial governor and ordered a massacre in 1599 that killed between 800 and 1,000 Acoma indigenous people. Three years ago, in 2020, a former Albuquerque City Council candidate was arrested for shooting a protester four times at a demonstration calling for the removal of another Oñate statue. Local and state officials in New Mexico reportedly ignored the warnings of potential gun violence ahead of the indigenous-led peaceful action. This is Melanie Yazi of the Red Nation. Denise Williams, mother of shooting victim Scott Williams, who was targeted at a 2020 Oñate protest in Albuquerque, said prior to Thursday's event, she called Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's office, the office of U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich, New Mexico State Police, the office of the New Mexico Attorney General, all members of U.S. Congress representing Valencia County in New Mexico, and all New Mexico State representatives and senators from Valencia County to warn them of the high chance of gun violence directed at attendees. State Senator Elizabeth Stefanix was the only one to respond. Immediately after the shooting, Scott Williams' father, Dan Williams, called the governor's office again to tell her that she, quote, had blood on her hands for failing to properly respond to and prevent both shootings. In October, a judge found probable cause to charge the gunman, Ryan Martinez, with attempted murder for the shooting of Jacob Johns during the peaceful prayer ceremony. Again, Melanie Yazzi. It has been shown that the shooter was in possession of automatic weapons and deliberately targeted and attacked a peaceful and prayerful assembly of indigenous peoples. He brandished his gun at women and children. If Jacob hadn't interposed himself, there could have well been a mass shooting on September 28th. For more, we're joined by Jacob Johns for his first interview since he put his body between women and children when the shooter charged at them. We're so thankful you're alive, Jacob, um, and that you have healed enough to come to Dubai for the UN Climate Summit. If you don't mind going back to September 28th and talk about why you had flown in from Washington State, where you live, to New Mexico, and what you were protesting when uh, the shooter came forward. Yeah, so uh, I'm based in Spokane, Washington. I'm a community-supported organizer underneath the fiscal sponsorship of the Backbone Campaign. And so I'm like a solo nonprofit group that does intersectional organizing around social justice and environmental protection. Uh, I am a part of the U.S. Climate Action Network, which is uh, a a national network that has like 187 organizations that come together and really try to build build momentum around forcing our government to to do what they say they're going to do, especially at these international tables of the COP. I had applied for a grant and went down to the West Coast Regional Meeting to 
talked about the grant and to meet with other orgs in the area. Uh, one of the things that the network likes to do is to support local movement spaces. And I was asked to come out and support the local Tiwa movement that was taking place at the statue in Española. Um, I'm part Hopi, which uh, makes me a cousins to my Tiwa cousins in New Mexico. And so I felt obligated to go out there. They told me that it was mainly women and children and two spirits and elders that were holding ceremony and prayer vigil to pray that this statue wasn't reinstalled. Uh, the statue was taken down in 2020, and the Akamo people and the Hemes people and all of the local Tiwa people have oral history and oral testimony of the horrendous things that took place there at the hands of this person, Onyate. So uh, we came out to support, to spend the night there, and we had a prayer ceremony at sunrise, uh, accompanied with the elders of the Tiwa Women United and uh, other members of the U.S. Climate Action Network that came out to support. And um, the county commissioner ended up not uh, reinstalling the statue, and so our prayers were heard and, and answered. You know, we weren't protesting, we weren't anti-anything. We were pro-logic and we were pro-sensibility, and our prayers were sent out into the universe and were received. So what happened with this guy in a red MAGA hat? So a group of uh, agitators showed up, a bunch of uh, right-wing extremists showed up wearing, you know, Make America Great Again hats, and um, were really just advocating for the statue to be built and be, well, to be re-put into place. Um, this, they thought, was a, a something that needed to be honored. Um, this person uh, who the statue is of is equitable to uh, Hitler. And so, you know, we think of the idea of putting up a statue of Hitler in, uh, you know, in, in a place where there's mainly Jewish people. It's a, it's a horrendous atrocity to, like, just moral responsibility. And so these people came out and they were very, very aggressive, very, very agitative. Um, there was one, specifically the shooter, um, that was walking around and being very, very aggressive, coming into the space, coming into the uh, altar space, and was just taking a lot of video, getting in people's faces, saying racist things to young children, and just uh, really being in a, in a negative space. Uh, the police ended up taking him and, and making him leave uh, because of how he was being so aggressive to the gentle crowd. Um, and then he was allowed to come back in. Uh, once he came back in, the police left. And this is when the uh, incident occurred. And he opened fire. You went through several surgeries. Um, that was at the end of September. This is only two months later. Um, you've healed enough to come here. Um, talk about why uh, you're leading the Indigenous Wisdom Keepers delegation and what you're calling for here. Yeah, so, you know, they said that they charged him with attempted murder, but I, I did, in fact, die. I died in the helicopter on the ride from El Española to uh, Albuquerque. And in that place beyond uh, death, I ran into a council of spirits that I had to beg and convince to let me come back into this body. I had to sign a new life contract with a, list, a long list of, of things that I had to do. And so this was one of them. You know, we had been working for a year uh, bringing together a group of uh, indigenous wisdom keepers and activists and youth activists from around the world to come together and put our minds into a document that would distill indigenous wisdom from a global perspective and really stand in solidarity with each other. You know, a lot of us as indigenous folks understand that 
what we are trying to push domestically often goes on deaf ears and that we have to step outside of our governmental forces and try to plead internationally to these type of venues. And so we have, uh, you know, 15 folks who had been coming from around the world to be here. And I was, first off, spiritually obligated, but morally obligated to continue to do this work. And, you know, first, I'm the, I'm the money man, too, right? Like, I got to sign the checks. I got to put everything in. I got to make sure everything is in the space that it needs to be. But I do have ongoing medical issues. And what is most important you want to see out of COP28? I want to see the hearts and minds of our world leaders shift into a more logical frame. You know, we must stand in solidarity with a future that is healthy and livable and just. Uh, we are being fed dystopian lies about how the world will end and how everything will fall apart. And yes, the science is saying that. But we as indigenous people understand that as the old world dies, that a new one is created and that we must focus on that creation process as being what it is we are trying to broadcast into the universe. Jacob Johns, Hopi and Akamel Odom, environmental defender, part of the U.S. Climate Action Network, leading the indigenous wisdom keepers delegation. After surviving being shot in the chest in September by a far-right agitator in New Mexico. Thank God you're okay. Thank you so much for being here in this first interview, Jacob. Next up, as Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva calls for phasing out fossil fuels, we'll speak with Amazon Watch about Lula's climate record back in 30 seconds. the British activist and poet. He was inspired by his roots in Jamaica and Barbados. He's died at the age of 65. To see our interview with Benjamin a few years ago, go to democracynow.org. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from COP28 in Dubai, UAE. We end today's show looking at Brazil's plans to address the climate crisis. Here at COP, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva called for a phase-out of fossil fuels. Now is the time to face the debate about the slow-motion pace of the decarbonization of the planet and to work towards an economy that will be less reliant on fossil fuel. But Brazil has also alarmed many climate activists over its plan to join the oil producer alliance, OPEC Plus, as an observer state. This is Lula again. Our participation in OPEC is for us to discuss with OPEC the need that rich oil-producing countries start investing part of their money in helping poor countries in the African continent, in Latin America, in Asia, to invest in non-fossil fuels. They can fund ethanol, biodiesel, wind energy, solar energy, green hydrogen. This is our role. 
We're joined now by Paula Vargas, Brazil Program Director at Amazon Watch. We thank you so much for being with us. Why don't you start off by clarifying what is Lula, the Brazilian president's stance right now? We had a lot of expectations that Brazil president will be leading climate um, action towards a better planet. But what we saw here is a big contradiction. And Lula, in one hand, it's like delivering a lot of important um, speeches and announcements. But in the other one, his minister of mining and energy is praising the interests of OPEC+. Plus. So it's a big skeleton. They are, try they are trying to hide, as for instance, the attempt to open the Amazon to oil exploitation. Were you encouraged by any stance? And do you think Lula can be moved? Also, the question about encouraging oil drilling um, off-site, off-coast. There are reasons to be encouraged and hopeful because it's in fact possible for Lula to take this leadership role. It's a fact that he arrived at COP delivering what he promised in terms of deforestation. And he pledged zero deforestation by 2030. He's one of the most ambitious uh, plans and uh, president in trying to lead his uh, NDCs towards the commitment of the Paris Agreement. He's also very focused in the climate justice and bringing those that are more vulnerable to the table. He's receiving indigenous leaders and working with them towards this. So yes, in two years, Lula can be uh, supported, not only pressured, but supported to take this leadership role. Talk more about what Bolsonaro did. Um, his targeting of the rainforest, and how much further Lula has to go. It's a sad thing to say that in four years, Bolsonaro has really created the, and opened the Amazon for a lot of illegal activities. He had give this sense of impunity, and now we have transborder crime going stronger. We have people defying the government. Even after Lula took the invaders from the Anomami territory, now they are back and defying the police and fighting them. So what Bolsonaro did was unprecedented in terms of like, like helping those illegal loggers, illegal minings, and farmers to get to the Amazon as the new frontier and a lawless frontier. So Lula has a big challenge. First, to try to get better condition, give better condition to the environmental agencies. They are now trying to do the work, so they need funds, they need people, because it was dismantled. But it's proof that it can be done. It was done before when Lula was president and Marina was the minister, and they were able to reduce deforestation in 82%. Now in only one year, they haven't been able to do this. Almost, They arrived in four, almost 49% of deforestation. So yes, it can be done, and he's moving towards it. But we also have to understand and be attentive for what they are calling sustainable progress, economy. Because he's talking about bioeconomy, but there are a lot of people that think that that means more mining. And mining, the model that exists now, it's not sustainable. So it is, Brazil can, give, can be in the leadership of renewable energy and can think about a different progress if they work with community towards, for instance, regenerative agriculture and not agribusiness, not cattle, not big industrial monoculture, because people are hungry. Like, we need food. And farmers can also be part of the development, right? So Brazil has a big, big possibility of being 
the top leader in environmental change, and we do believe that we have two years to prove that. Um, Latin America is the deadliest region for environmentalists. Who's behind the murders? It's not a simple question because we have been seeing how crime are a big network of actors. We have from, for instance, the community, poor people, they are working as illegal loggers and illegal fishermen because they need to survive. But they are part of then a big chain that are doing, that, like uh, taking this fish, but working with illegal loggers. And then the illegal miners come. And in the foyer of Bolsonaro, what we happen is the big cartel. The drug cartel are now working transborder between like the Peru, Colombia, Brazil, Venezuela, and just recently Amazon Watch released a big important report, Amazon Underworld, where this is like showing off. And it's also important to understand that the the solution is not simple. We just don't need more militarization or it's not putting the army or police, police reinforcement, the only solution needs to happen to take them. But if, if we don't bring solutions, there are social solutions, work with the community, economy solutions, there will be just another war and we don't need more war. What do you want to see come out of you and COP28, where we are right now? I want to see people to believe in that COP can be a place for big discussions and to give hope and unite movements, not the big business expo that is becoming right now. The significance of um, uh, Al Jaber, Dr. Al Jaber, being the president of the COP and also the head of one of the largest oil companies in the world. Yeah, that is like and the... And the lobbyists, about 2,500 of them. We've never seen anything yeah. like this at any COP. We also not saw, like, what we saw since Egypt, right? It's like, why those two COPs are happening in those places? And I think, like, because of this and because of this the co corporate capture, the fossil fuel capture happening, instead of giving us less hope, should, like, push civil society and movements and journalists towards putting more effort to make Brazil COP a different one. Again, like, we have to understand loss and damage will never happen without pressure of the civil society. It's not their interest to send their money. And there were money announced. It's not enough, but it's announced. So we have to maybe believe that UN and COP could be a place that we can still be politicians together to discuss the better world, but it will not happen without our pressure. Your work and our work as civil society and more, we have to organize transnational global movement so that together we can push our governments toward the right path. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Paula Vargas, Brazil Program Director at Amazon Watch. In the coming days, we'll be broadcasting an interview with Brazil's first indigenous people's minister and the first indigenous woman's people's minister. That does it for our broadcast. A very special thanks to our team here in Dubai. To Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Hani Massoud, Tamari Astudio, and Dennis Moynihan here in the UAE, as well as the AP team, Rania Khader and Julian Jones, Pablo Del Braccio, David Yakulucci, Tobin Shackelford, uh, Zoran Yankovic, Joseph Mark Delema, Sama Wale, and Rawan Kassam. Oh, this Saturday, I'll be moderating the Bill Marsh Tribunal with journalist Ryan Grimm at the National Press Club at 2 p.m. 
on Julian Assange and the Biden administration's crackdown on free speech and the First Amendment. You can watch the live stream at Democracy Now!'s YouTube channel that's Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with the whole team here in Dubai, UAE.